Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, I've been watching, and I think you've seen a bit of it too, The Greatest Night in Pop on Netflix. What a title. <coughs> greatest Night. Greatest Night, meaning, I don't know if it's the Greatest Night, but it's a great, com- great assembly of pop stars, I suppose, in American history for one project. Would that be right? And it's the film, it's a documentary about the making of We Are the World in February 1985. And uh, I, I, I found it the most unbelievably tense experience <laughs> watching this from start to finish. Uh, as we know, uh, Harry Belafonte gets it going and Lionel Richie and uh, Michael Jackson are the kind of main movers and who write the song. But they assemble this huge number of people and they realise they can do it after the um, music awards in Los Angeles because they're all there and they could just bust them over to a studio. Book. But the agony of the whole thing... Firstly, there's the tension of the songwriting, isn't there? They have five days to write a song. It's got to be a song that's going to be approved of by Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson, Bruce Springsteen, Dylan and Diana Ross, Tina Turner, Dale Warwick, or everybody who turns up. It's going to have to be good enough for them. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to somehow equal the British version, which is their inspiration. Um, Michael Jackson is revealed can't play any instruments. Doesn't play any instruments. Only hums. Yep. You notice that he just I hums didn't all know the parts. Amazing. Yeah. So you've got all that tension. Then you've got the, the idea that if anyone discovers where the venue is, if the secrecy, if the secret gets out, a lot of people will not take part if they turn up and there's just billions of fans outside, which is understandable. So it's got to be a complete secret project. Then there's the moment when they're all assembled, which I thought was absolutely amazing, where Geldof makes a speech. Geldof has gone over to, uh, to kind of uh, be involved and to G him all up. And, and, and I, I, he is such a talent, I think. It's the most extraordinary speech. He only speaks for about two or three minutes. And the point he makes to this most unbelievably wealthy, uh, lofty collection of, of, of people is that he's just come back from Africa. And he says, I want you to think of nothing. 
Think of nothing, because that's what these people have. He talks about how 15 bags of flour is all that's available for 15,000 people. And, uh, you know, up to that point, the general tenor of this whole thing has been a bit facetious. You know, God, if, if a bomb lands on this place, you know, John Denver will be back at the top of the charts. It's all that kind of stuff. And Gelov somehow manages to, to, to focus all these people and create the right atmosphere to record. Brilliant. Then there's the video and recording. The video and the recording have to be done at the same time, don't they? Because they've got them all there and they've done the chorus and then they've got to do the, the little solo spots. There's the heat. It's then impossibly hot. It's then five o'clock in the morning. Al Jarro is pissed. Did you follow that bit? <laughs> Al Jarro is pissed. Al Jarro is so drunk. I want to have a t shirt saying Al Jarro yeah. is pissed. He keeps having to redo all his takes uh, to the, much the consternation of everybody else. Then, this is another amazing moment. Somebody mentions that they ought to have a bit in Swahili. Stevie Wonder's Stevie Wonder. idea is that everybody in Africa speaks Swahili. Yeah, yeah. Which so is... he says, we've got to have a bit of Swahili in here. <laughs> and so somebody rushes out to research what phrase they could possibly use and tries to get people to get the pronunciation right. And then somebody else puts up their hand and says, are you sure they speak Swahili in Ethiopia? And somebody else says, is this actually a good idea? Yeah, By this point, Waylon Jennings has walked, hasn't he? He's just walked out. He said, I am not taking part in this. This is absolutely <laughs> absurd, you know. Then, oh, there's just the, 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 the diplomacy of getting everyone involved. Sheila E then walks out because they realise, or she realises, she's only been brought in. Because they want Prince. They want Prince. And Prince has got in touch and said, look, I'll take part, uh, but I only will take part if I'm in a room on my own, away from everybody else, and I just do the guitar solo. I would like the building moved a few feet to the left. That's right. For and in which case take. I might turn up. And so he is told that they don't want a guitar solo and they're, they're not prepared to put up with this, and so he doesn't come. So Sheila Reed then realises she's been the bait and back she in. walks. <laughs> I know. And then, and then, because his line has gone, Huey Lewis gets to do his line. So you get these wonderful moments. My favourite was the combination of Huey Lewis, Kim Carnes and Cindy Lauper all around the same uh, microphone. And they're all trying to stamp as much of their... If you only have, you know, three or four seconds, you've got to be recognisable, haven't you, as you, when those three or four seconds come on. In which case, Bruce does this kind of wonderful kind of horse kind of, uh, mm, you know, yeah. assault. And, uh, mm. you know, uh, and Cindy Lauper thro- and gets the maximum amount of drama out of the tiniest moment on this tape. But uh, the other key moment is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's just sitting there thinking, what is going on? I do not understand this. <laughs> He's required to sing his bit. You remember that bit he does where he has to sound as much like Bob Dylan as possible. This is a choice we're making <laughs> of saving our own lives. <laughs> it's true, he made a better world for you and me. <laughs> you know, he, he does it. Really, and Stevie Wonder has come in to give him some advice about how he ought to sing. <laughs> and Stevie Wonder finishes up doing a kind of I mean, impersonation of Dylan, doesn't he? <laughs> it's fantastic. So there it all is. And I, I just thought it was worth watching because it's just absolutely... You can't believe that they managed to do it. Um, all of the people in the room, or at least most of them, must have been thinking... I'm not sure I really want to do this, but then again, not doing it is oh, absolutely. Because it is. The thing that struck me about it is it's, it's showbiz in action, that is. You know, never mind the cause, never mind the famine or whatever. This is show business. You know, that, that it started on the basis that oh, they've done one in Britain. We maybe ought to do one of those things. And so they get started and everybody feels that they ought to be in it. And everything in the film 
you know, the, the, the film is trying to impress you all the way through with just how successful all those people are. Yeah. And just how fortunate you are that they're here. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the most it's the most vulgar kind of account of the old show business hierarchy you can possibly imagine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look how fortunate we are to have the these people have descended from Mount we Olympus. We have been blessed. Yeah, we really person. have been absolutely yeah. blessed. And there's 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 no kind of becoming modesty about no. it. You know what I mean? And um, you know, you and I were there at the recording of the of the British one, you know. Um, do they know it's Christmas? And there, and there, there was no kind of... Nobody was trying to get more of the limelight there than anybody no, else, really were. were they? Because I think there was every, there's a slightly British, British kind of embarrassment about doing there these is. things. Don't make too much of yourself, you know what I mean? Just... Just do your bit. Don't let anybody down. I mean, you could down. argue that the level of celebrity at the British one, which was kind of in the Duran Duran Culture Club, uh, Spandau Ballet kind of sting kind of uh, level, was not quite comparable with, um, you know, Ray Charles and Smokey Robinson and people. But by the same token, everybody understood that they've just got to get on and not take the limelight and just try and make... They're, they're working collectively on, on this kind of worthwhile project. But this was agony. And also it's agony to think, I, I, I think for all of them, that you're seeing yourself recording in front of all that. That's the audience, isn't it? So you've got Ray Charles sitting right behind you. And uh, you've got, um, you know, and Bob Dylan to your left. And uh, that is obviously unbelievably unnerving. But no, it told you something about the difference between American and, and British characters, I think. Yeah, yeah. And of course, in the same week... It was the Grammy Awards in the United States where, um, you know, there was a load of social media traffic about the fact that that, uh, that the show had been pretty much stopped by Tracy Chapman and uh, what's his face? The country's... Luke Coombs? Yeah, yeah, Luke Coombs. Um, both doing Fast Car. And uh, I went and looked at this, and I thought, "Well, this is really good. It's very good." But I watched it; it's fantastic. But but it, it it's it says a lot about the Grammy Awards in two thousand and twenty-four that they can be stopped in their tracks by somebody, two people, singing a really good song, a really good yeah. song from nearly forty years ago. Yeah, with real instruments, without a kind of. Uh, <laughs> Complicated arrangement and backing tra- tra- tracks and all that, and uh, you know, it, it, it's like it, it, the kind of modesty of it was almost a gimmick compared to what people normally do yeah. at these kind of shows nowadays. And of course, the other factor that struck me is this: you know, nineteen eighty-eight, Fast Car came out, and it was obviously a very big hit in the states and in the UK and loads of other places. And and probably, you know, went onto the playlist of lots of radio stations from which it's never been removed ever. You know, because it's just one of those things that goes on forever. But the, one of the reasons that it galvanised the audience at the Grammys and the TV audience is it's probably one of the last songs that you could say everybody knows. I was thinking the same thing. Completely. Everybody knows that song. You put it on in, you know, in your local Marks and Spencers, 
everybody in there will know that song and will know what it is and will know who did it. You know what I mean? Which I don't think applies so much in the in the kind of twenty first century in the segregated where, yeah where media. we all follow our own little silos. You know absolutely. Whereas I was thinking that about a lot of you know, Madonna's the early Madonna hits were the same. You know, "Come on, Eileen" by Dexter. Yes. Uh, all the Abbey hits, obviously. The last really huge hit, I think, was probably Losing My Religion by... OK, R. well, I was going to go a bit further. The one that you could play, and it would, you know, if you're putting on a wedding reception, we've often talked about this, you're putting on a wedding reception, so you've got representatives of every age group there. Crazy in Love by Beyonce, oh, yeah, yeah. everybody yep. instantly... Recognizes, you know, the kind of recognition of that is pretty much the same as Abba's Dancing Queen yeah. or Come On Eileen or anything like that. Um, whereas I'd struggled to think of anything for the last 10 years that would have the same kind of impact, you know, because we just don't consume things in the same way, we don't listen to the same radio stations, you know. In the but also way. none of those, I don't think a lot of those 90s hits have the same resonance too. I don't think there's anything by Oasis that is as, as familiar as things like Fast Car because, you know, they're, 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 it's become more uh, something that a particular age group would listen to yes, and an age group so. above that wouldn't listen to. Whereas the thing about Fast Car is one of those tracks that everybody in their 60s heard when they were 30 and everyone in their 30s has kind of grown up with too, so yeah. everybody still knows it. You know? I'll tell you the other thing about Tracy Chapman. It's nearly 40 years on. She looked fantastic. She looked brilliant. She Didn't looked she look fantastic? Absolutely fantastic. Hair grey, but, you yeah, know, no. she the quite youthful appearance, she really. Did, she and, really brilliant. And, and, of course, she hasn't played, is it right, she hasn't played live in nine years? Oh, is that right? I think that's right. But she was, it was quite touching to watch because there were people bursting into spontaneous applause throughout the performance, yeah, weren't they? Yeah. And she was obviously completely overcome. Yeah, she was. She just looked kind of... Um, well, she looked as if she was enjoying it, but she did look as if uh, as if it had kind of taken her surprise, which actually brings me to another thing which we, uh, I wanted to talk about today. It's, what is it, 60 years ago this week since the Beatles... Oh, yeah. ...arrived at Kennedy Airport in February 1964, just a couple of months after the death of... John F. Kennedy, and um, and I was thinking about this. You know, clearly there's been a lot about this in the news, and the you know marking this occasion, this anniversary, and why do we keep going back to it? Because it obviously was the start of the Beatles story in the United States. But it struck me that one of the reasons we keep going back to it is it's kind of a unique event, really, in the sense that. And this is where it relates to Tracy Chapman being pleasantly surprised by, you know, the reception. It's that the, it's that the Beatles were not expecting it. And so I tell you what it's like. The Beatles arriving at Kennedy Airport and finding that huge reception and all those screaming kids and all the media interests and everything... It's like the greatest surprise party in the history of the world. Yes. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's like, you know, everybody plans those things. We'll go in the back room, we'll turn off the lights, and then we'll all go surprise. Well, usually, one of the people who's involved in that suspects it's going to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they, they have to kind of fake surprise to a certain extent. The Beatles were genuinely surprised about that. 
Brian Epstein was genuinely... Yeah. If, in fact, everybody was genuinely surprised, even even the people at kind of Capitol Records who'd you know, been leafleting the schools on a Friday afternoon, making sure that they came out to the airport and so forth. Everybody was taken aback by just the take-up of the idea amongst absolutely everybody. And so, you know, for a, for a week after that arrival on the Friday, America was just... It's like America had just got a new boyfriend or girlfriend, you know what I mean? So suddenly the world has absolutely changed, you know what I mean? Everybody loves them and just talks about how they love them. And everybody goes off and, you know, either gets a guitar or does something with their hair as a, as a direct... Was uh, there a certain possible. amount of arrogance there in the kind of uh, American media about the idea that we're America and we do entertainment? Well, there was, there was definitely an arrogance in the American music business. I don't think there's any doubt about that because, you know, as we know, Capitol Records was the uh, American arm of EMI Records and had the first dibs on being able to put yeah. out the Beatles records and, and refused and to do it. it down. <laughs> refused repeatedly to, yeah. which is amazing, until they had a you know, last-minute change of heart around... Uh, she loves you and I want you hold your hand, I think. Um, no, but the people who, I suppose the people who, who didn't think it would work but could see the commercial possibility were the old squares who ran no, the, the old, media. You know, the, the old Ed squares, but they were all, all over it. That's the interesting thing to me is if you go back and read, uh, you know, because you know, I wrote about this quite a lot in, in my best-selling book, over, over, yes. Overpaid, Oversex and Over There, um, the, um, if you'll forgive me for mentioning it, they, you know, the likes of Ed Sullivan and Walter Cronkite and all these people were all over it, you know, because they thought something's happening in Britain. It's long haired groups and screaming. And then they decided, OK, we're going to pick one of these groups is going to happen here. We're going to pick the one the Queen picked, which is basically yeah. the, the angle. Whereas the kind of music press and the more hipster end of it were thinking, oh, no, that's not going to work out no, here. At too all. popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be some kind of blues act. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they go that <laughs> yeah. far, but it is just an extraordinary thing because I do remember it happening. Now, obviously, we must have had some. I think on the Saturday in the UK, we had some film reports on the news about how well it had gone down. You know, when they'd arrived at Kennedy Airport. Which don't forget, it only just recently yeah. changed its name from Idlewild to Kennedy Airport after the death of JFK, um, and the and so over that weekend, British chests rather swelled with pride about suddenly there's something we're giving to them that they're really excited about, and that had never happened before, and you know continued during the previous week. And of course, there's the amazing story of. Um, and Granada Television over here decided, because the Beatles kind of came from their patch, it was important that they try and do something that captured this arrival. And so they got in touch with the Maisel Brothers, American documentary makers. Who made a documentary in 12 days or something? You know, less, a week, wasn't it? And they pretty much were told on 24 hours of their arrival. Two hours before get, they got to the get airport. Get to the airport. Yeah. 
And these guys are obviously very sharp-elbowed, very resourceful individuals. And because the apparatus of security wasn't really established, they managed to just get in the cars with the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. And so they were there, sticking their cameras in the face of the Beatles, who were thrilled to bits with all the attention. Not bored with it at all. And so they followed them for the next few days, uh, you know, the Beatles in New York, and the film was um, edited together, sent to Granada. Granada showed it as a documentary later that on, week. On the, on, when they were still in the country, were they? They showed it yeah. twice. Yeah. Because the Beatles were there for like 10 days yeah. or something like that, because they did two... Yeah, so successfully showed the next night, didn't they? And, uh, you know, and if you... It's amazing to go and see that film. You find bits of it on YouTube. And if you want to know where A Hard Day's Night came from, it's that film. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it, You know, yeah. the whole idea of the kind of black and white, you know, chaos of guys jumping into cars and girls banging on the roof and all that kind of thing. Nobody had ever seen that kind of thing before. And so the Maisel brothers caught it in the wild, so to speak. Mm. And Dick Lester, a few months later, made it into a, into a feature film. You know, he faked it. He faked what they had done for real, yeah. you know. So that whole idea of... Um, but that feeling that they were so thrilled about it is absolutely intoxicating. Yeah. You know, because you and I went to see that exhibition of McCartney's photographs and they're so wonderful because there he is in America for the first time. People hadn't been to America. No. George had been to George America the year before. He'd been to Illinois to see his sister, which is also an extraordinary episode, really, when he was a huge star in Britain and nobody knew who he was and went off and played a few gigs, didn't he, and bought a guitar. But... Um, that idea that they they were absolutely overjoyed with the skyscrapers, the police, people yeah. carrying guns. I tell, you what, I tell you what they were most uh, immediately enthralled by. They were given little transistor radios with earpieces. Yeah. And, of course, what America had, which nobody had had any experience of in Britain, More than was millions of radio stations. Yeah, yeah. All of which were playing uh, the Beatles. All playing the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, and they they just thought they, they just thought this is it. And of course, in, in you know in the next couple of years, loads of other acts followed them to the states, and you know, lots of them had a lot of success. But nobody had an arrival like the Beatles. And so, also the humour was a big part of it, don't you think? Oh, that, yeah. The idea of a democracy. They weren't used. They were only used to solo acts coming over. And uh, well, they didn't have well, they tried and they tried people like Cliff Richard had tried, didn't he? Yes, and Clifford tried, and I think went on the Ed Sullivan show. And wasn't he forced to play? Um, where did you uh, get that hat? Where did you get that hat? Ed Sullivan liked it because he said, he, Well, you can be on my show if you play one of my favorite songs. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. No, but that idea that they could arrive off a plane and that all of them appeared to be as important as the other and always as funny as, as the other. And uh, all look completely different. Again, the way they looked, totally different from oh, yeah. American media. American media with the brill-creamed hair. Hair that moves. It's, <laughs> the, it's, the, it's the change in shape of the, of the human head that yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. Beatles, uh, you know, ushered yes, in. Yes, yeah. If you go and read all the, you know, the press clippings from the time, from American media, from absolutely every local paper to Time magazine to the New York Times or whatever... You will simply never find a piece, you will literally never find a piece where their hair is not referred to in the first paragraph. Yeah. 
It's absolutely the leading thing. It's the hair. It is. Look at the hair. Yeah. It's amazing. And as we've often remarked, it wasn't that long. It wasn't that unkempt or anything like that. But it just didn't look like the silhouette of Ricky Nelson or Elvis Presley or the Everly Brothers. You know, the people were used to pop stars having a certain silhouette. Suddenly they had a shaggier silhouette, yeah. you know. It was a slightly more art student. Or is it, well, it comes from the French, doesn't it? It was, it was borrowed from they the... Got it. the Paul they got and John had there. It was a 61. They were in Paris. In they? Paris. What an incredibly pivotal moment that Absolutely. is. In terms of their career. It's all hair. Because they'd come back as greasers and gone as Well, pigs, you, you know. know, when John Lennon had his first conversation with Ringo, after Ringo had been invited to join, I think Brian Epstein was the person who officially asked him to join and then John had a phone conversation with him afterwards and said you do realise the hair will have to change yeah get rid of the cyborgs which is amazing actually now they think that on their first album cover he's still got it greased back and that they allowed that to happen yeah which is yeah. astonishing really yeah, he probably had to grow out yeah but anyway so is it 60 years it's 60 years, 60 years. absolutely unbelievable day I, I can't think of any I, uh, comparable moments actually in terms of of uh, having that kind of effect on pop culture. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So this week uh, saw the, the the death of Mojo Nixon um, on, on a cruise, on a cruise with his fans. I suppose it's inevitable. There's so many cruises with fans nowadays that eventually, you know, this is going to happen, isn't it? And I was very touched by the um, the statement from his family, which published in the early This is now listen, ladies and gentlemen. So you've been in Mojo Nixon is first. You, you've heard, you, yeah. you've heard, you know, kind of uh, you've heard tributes paid to people. I, I I guarantee you've never heard one like this it's just from brilliant. a family. Mojo Nixon was full tilt, wide open, rock hard. Root hog, corner on two wheels and on fire. <laughs> Passing after a blazing show, a raging night, closing the bar, taking no prisoners and a good breakfast with bandmates and friends. A cardiac event on the outlaw country cruise is about right. And that's just how he did it. That's Isn't that absolutely extraordinary? Absolutely lovely. And the expression, uh, corner on two wheels, I've never heard before. <laughs> a corner on two wheels and on fire. That's a shot. You think, this is just a, a full-on hell raise. And the, uh, the very good detail about the extra breakfast, too. It didn't say that he'd had kind of six bottles of Jack Daniels, but it just it, this is a man who lived life to the full. And pegged out pretty much on stage, didn't he? Had a cardiac event where it was pretty much in front of all his pals. It's wonderful. Didn't the way would have wanted Didn't it. Adrian Henry, you know, the Liverpool poet of the um, of the famous trio from the sixties, Adrian Henry, Roger McGough, and Brian Patton? Didn't Adrian Henry? have a poem called Let Me Die a Young Man's Death, isn't it? Oh, right. Wasn't it? You know, I want I want to be shot in bed after having been discovered uh, by the husband of my mistress. Fantastic. <laughs> idea. Yes. Uh, of course, when he, when he wrote that, that poem, he was probably about 25 years yeah. old and said the prospect of death seemed somewhat distant and, you know, not it's entirely real. About it. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, that's 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 Mojo Nixon. That that's quite something. What else were we going to talk about? Lulu and Lulu. <laughs> we're going to talk about Lulu because Lulu has announced her retirement. And it did strike me that, you know, she's one of those people who's just been part Absolutely. of the culture of Absolutely. British life. And, and in my case, actually, there weren't that many moments where I really kind of intersected with her. You know, I was, I think I was 10 when uh, when she had her first hit. And she was only 15. Shout. Dave. Yeah, I know. I, I, I look back and she was actually only, what, 10, probably six years older than me. Unbelievable. And talking about, as we were earlier, about records that absolutely everybody recognises, that is one. Shout. You can put that on in any yeah. situation. And it doesn't even have to play for longer than five seconds. And people absolutely yeah. know what that is. Him. Yeah. It's one of those records that it was a hit at the time, but it's become far better known over a period of time. Absolutely extraordinary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And of course, Lulu, you know, has always been... She seems to me to have never changed, really. Never just still piping hot. She's <laughs> absolutely... <laughs> she's incredible. Saucy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yes, she is. Also, was, there was a twinkle in her eye at the age of 16. And it's still there today, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I know. Which you can't say about... She's never had... Well, she's had periods where she's... There's been kind of half-hearted attempts to reposition Lulu, but you can't really, can you? Lulu is Lulu, isn't she? I, I got an idea to the extent to which she's part of our, of our kind of pop culture where we're watching uh, Have I Got News For You because, you know, Paul Merton, I don't know if you ever watched but Paul Merton is so funny, has this running gag when they have the little quiz at the end and it's the odd one out round, you've got to guess who it is, you know. He always goes, if he doesn't, he always goes, is it Lulu? <laughs> <laughs> but partly because just saying Lulu so is funny in itself. And you can say it quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very two quick syllables. Joke. Is it Lulu? Yes. Lulu is one of the inevitable answers to some pop quiz question. You see, interesting, here's my question to you. OK, let's take the three... 
the three stars of kind of three female stars of British pop music of the mid sixties: Lulu, Cilla Black, Dusty Springfield. Okay, arguably Lulu more famous, partly well, because she's called Lulu, partly <laughs> because she's called Lulu, partly because she's just. So likable. Partly because also the man with the golden gun. I mean, there were various things that managed to hold the world. There were various things... To serve with love. To serve with love, which got her back into the frame. Probably bigger. <laughs> and also there was that moment where um, all those, those... A lot of those girls were kind of re, reborn, weren't they? Through somebody just remembering them and wanting to do a collaboration with Dusty Springfield with the Pet, Pet Shop, Shop Boys. Boys yeah. Sandy Shaw and the Smiths. Of course, that? Sandy Shaw. And, uh, and then Lulu would take that. Do you know, Sandy so Shaw, can I just take a, a brief, brief tangent on the subjects of Sandy Shaw? I didn't realise that the name Sandy Shaw... I'll be, I'm going to be quite honest about this. I didn't know that. I no. didn't know that that was a, a clever pun until about ten years no. ago. It's only quite recently, you know. Back in the day, it was Sandy Shaw. She came from Dagenham. That wasn't her proper name. I can't remember. And she she performed in Bare Feet. In Bare Feet. That was, that was, that the, was gimmick. the gimmick. That was the gimmick. And a very good gimmick it was. And, and so every time she appeared on telly, the camera would just, just have to have one shot of her bare feet. It's her. It's Sandy. It's the genuine but article. It's because Sandy and Shaw weren't spelt the right... I mean, I just... I didn't know what it was, but I never noticed <laughs> never And it just suddenly all. dawned on me. Yeah, yeah. The other one was Faye Fife. Faye Fife. Oh, for Fife. Faye Fife of, of, uh, of the Rosilla. That's you still know? funny. It's I think I did know that. Incredibly funny And for Fife. <laughs> Although I probably did get Pete Briquette. So... Uh, yes. <laughs> but God bless her, Lulu. That's yeah. fantastic. And the other amazing thing is how long she's had 60 years of being... Of fame. Uh, uh, isn't that amazing? Starting when she's, whatever, 15. Yeah. Now 75. So yeah. Yeah. very good work for her. And she, she married uh, John Frieda, a hairdresser, kind of West End hairdresser. And, uh, and my wife used to have her hair done there back in the day. And it was a great excitement whenever she came home. She said, Lulu was in. Lulu was in. Lulu was in. Having a tint or whatever. Lulu in the hairdressers. See, it's perfect, doesn't it, really? That's fantastic. So, anyway, Film Club. um, This is our effort to keep you up to date with the latest cutting edge things in the world of cinema. And I realise we forgot to do it this week, last week, so we'll make up for it this week by talking about a very exciting new film that we've both seen, which you might really like to see. It's on, it, is it on... Uh, it's on Netflix. Or, Netflix or something, I don't it, know where we saw it. It's yeah. called... It's called... Do you want to write this down? It's called Jaws. <laughs> it's called Jaws. And it's about... It's about a fish, isn't it's it? It's about a fish. It's about <laughs> a, 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 trials with a fish. <laughs> Things God, that go... it's good. God, it's good. I hadn't seen it. I'm not being funny. I don't think I've seen it for, what, 30 years? Oh, really? No, really. God, I watch ages. it every year. It's absolutely brilliant film. And it, it, it struck me that you, they don't make... Well, you just don't make films that way now. It's all about pace. It's brilliant. Think, key things, right? When does the shark hunt begin? After one hour and ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go an hour and ten minutes. And the other thing is that they don't, apart from this is a certificate thing, obviously, but they don't show you the, the, the frightening things. I, I feel okay. that when okay, people, well, when, let when me stop make you, films Let me now, stop you saying that. What's the frightening thing? Well, George? the frightening thing would be the dead body on the beach. No, it's the not. Fr- that's not frightening. No, the frightening thing would be the fish, obviously. I the guess. frightening thing 
is the prospect of the film. The prospect is, is absolutely, which is far more frightening than actually seeing it. What I'm saying is if you made that film now, I think you'd constantly see some incredibly convincing creature chewing people's legs off. You don't see any of that, partly because, of course, it was so convincing they couldn't do it, and it kept breaking down. But the things that are really terrifying are the, the idea that it's there in the water and there's a little boy in a lilo. Oh, and you just think it can only be a matter of minutes before all this, you know, it's when they shoot the barrels into, they attach it to barrels, yeah, and yeah. the barrels suddenly surface yeah. by the boat, and you're thinking it's here, but we can't see it, and uh, all that 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 building attention, and the other thing which is brilliant is it's a kind of morality tale that the three characters each have their very powerful reasons for catching the shark, brooding. That's the Roy Schneider character. Mm. His whole thing is, is about redemption because he's the one who allowed people back on the beaches. And there's that scene where uh, the, the mother of the boy who died, yeah, yeah. the shark, yeah. you know, says it's all your fault, yeah. you should be ashamed of yourself. And mm. So he's got to come somehow get even for what he feels he did wrong. You've got Quint, the Robert Shaw character, kind of who's sort of Ahab from Moby yeah, Dick. Yeah. And, and Quint... Quint was on the boat. It's a fantastic story that he tells at night. Oh, about he, the, when they're all getting drunk. Yeah, he told, yeah. tell about the story about being on the Indianapolis, at Indianapolis delivering the, the atomic bomb. Isn't yeah, that right? Yeah, something like that. And then the boat comes back and it's torpedoed by the Japanese and it sinks and 700 people go into the water and nearly all of them are eaten by sharks, apart from Robert Shaw. So for him, it's a kind of personal vengeance, you know. And for Hooper... The Richard Dreyfus character. It's a kind of vindication. He was the one that said, don't let people go on the beaches. And they said, mm-hmm. go on, on your pine, mm-hmm. you daft college boy, what do you know? Mm-hmm. And so he has to, nobody believed him and he has to. Do you know what I think? I, 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 as I say, I watch it every year, at least once. You know, I go through Netflix or whatever and I think, there's loads of half-baked takes <laughs> you know, I don't know, Johnny Aniston films or whatever. Um, and then I think, no, there's Jaws there, I'll just watch Jaws. And I, I watch it all the way through. It's absolutely brilliant. And the thing that, that strikes me more and more over the years is I have no interest in the fish whatsoever. All my interest is in the people. Yeah. And it, it has that Hitchcock you know, uh, uh, lens on 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 communities in broad daylight. The casting of kind of the faces in that film is absolutely wonderful. You know, the the, the town burgers, you know, turn up in their polyester leisure wear and they've all got slightly puffy faces. Yes. They've got vaguely corrupt faces, you yeah. know. And it's fascinating to me during COVID how often... The mayor in Jaws was invoked by people discussing whether restrictions should be lifted and you open the beaches, you know, certain politicians in, in favour of... It's the Pied Piper, isn't it, as well? It's the Pied Piper story. Yeah. And the Pied Piper says, no, you know, we, we don't want to get rid of get this going. Because did you remember when, when Shaw arrives, he says, for $10,000 I can get rid of your fish. They say, well, I can't possibly have $10,000 beyond your body. Yeah. So it's kind of links to lots of old stories. But I love Roy Scheider. I think he's absolutely perfect in that film. I love the scene where Richard Dreyfus comes round and has dinner with him and his wife and brings two bottles of wine. Yeah. So I brought both colours because I didn't, didn't know what we were didn't know what we were eating. That's right. As if Roy Scheider's family would bother about things like that. 
and then Roy Schoeder just gets, opens the red and pours like half of it yeah. into an enormous great tall water glass because that's the only thing they had there. And drinks the whole thing. <laughs> Pretty much drinks the whole thing. And... Um, I, I just, I just, I love the comic touches. Have you noticed there's one shot in the harbour just before, just when the, the kind of shark hunting craze has, has uh, taken hold of the, and so everybody's arriving in town, boatloads of drunk guys are sitting out there to, to bang to themselves a shark. And you see a shot of the harbour master coming out of his little shed, and he's Popeye. The founder of the actory looks like Popeye. It's absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. brilliant. And uh, I think, you know, it's regarding the fish is neither in nor there. What it is, is a wonderful illustration of how people can't be left alone to look after themselves. You know, that if you leave things to people, they will not necessarily make the wisest choices, you know what I mean? The, 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 the function of government sometimes is say, no, stop, we're going to do it this way, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, but that's part of the commercial interest, isn't it, is that, that they don't want the beach no, to go to all the money. they're going to risk it. Yeah, yeah, we're we're quite, quite understandably. There are so many comic moments, there's one fantastic moment when they decide to slit open the, 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 the body of the shark, this is Dreyfus's The idea. one that they thought they... Yeah, which they yeah. thought was the one they kind yeah. of, we've got it, it's all right, don't yeah. see, move on, everything's fine, it's dead. And he says, this will prove it, you know, and, it, and out comes a... A number plate, doesn't it, <laughs> from somewhere out of long out of town? Yeah. Oh, it's just so clever. And my favourite line in the film, I've written it down, is uh, is he uh, says, "Can you do that?" And Shai just says, "I can do anything. I'm the chief of police." That's <laughs> I think that's an absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, you should make up that deficit soon. I've got readers' correspondence here, Mark. Well, in particular. Interesting one from Tony Gillum. Um, and we were talking, I think, last week about... I did a wonderful record via Ben Watt called uh, The Room by Fabiano de Nascimento and Sam Gendel, if I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, Tony is a reviewer for Songlines magazine, but he's also a musician and he's, he's reviewed the records, so he knew it. And uh, I was talking last week about... How wonderful it is to be in the world of streaming. You know, somebody mentions a record to you, you can be listening to it 30 seconds later. Uh, and he says he agrees. Um, but he says, I can also see the flip side of the miracle. He says, my royalty statements for last month tells me that my album, In the Emptiness, plug, there you got a plug, Tony, In the Emptiness, has been streamed the modest 86 times across Spotify, Amazon Music and YouTube. And as a result, I've earned 46 pence. That sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> well, it obviously is not a lot, but I have to say, Tony, that's more than I would have thought. Because well, it's a lot compared with, what, with people tell you a track on Spotify, a single track is point oh oh five. Okay, but, or but a single track on Spotify is equivalent to a single radio play to a single listener. It, it's it's not you know this is many to many, isn't it? You know, it's yeah, not, that's true. It's not one to many, which yeah. was, was the old model, you know, and um, you know. 
obviously you're not going to retire and uh, he has to reach the minimum payment of 50 pounds he'll get paid you know you know but you could say i don't know um you know as i think i pointed out the the other week i'd gone looking for the uh, the records of ben sidron former member of the steve miller band who I've been kind of half-heartedly following since 1967. And I discovered, to my delight, actually, that you could listen to no less than 25 of them on Spotify. They're there. They're all there. And the other thing about them being all there is they're all there for, well, as far as we know at the moment, forever. And so tiny increments might keep coming in for a long, long period of time, you know. Whereas... In the old dispensation, if you didn't make your money straight away, you didn't make it you'd at all. It. You'd, you'd have it, you know. Um, actually, talking to Ben Sidron, his son Leo Sidron, who plays very much in the same uh, in the same kind of uh, style, is coming to London soon. No, I'm going to see him, and you're going to come with. Oh, you're going to come good. with me. We're going. Uh, they, they're that's playing. A night out. They're playing at Brasserie Zadel. Do you fancy that? Yes. We could have some chicken and chips that's, and watch Leo Sidron. That's That'd be good. good. I can't remember the date. It's in late March. I'll, t- I'll tell you later. That's really good. So anyway, Tony Gillam, thanks very much for that. And if anybody else has got their Spotify royalty statements, that well, they're not royalties. Are they? no, I suppose they are royalties. Um, if anybody else has got their Spotify statements that they'd like to read out to us, we'd be only too delighted to hear them, wouldn't we? We would. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we are joined, uh, finally, by a very old pal on the podcast. He's come to all our wonderful shows in uh, when we did them in the Islington and still comes to the ones we do in central London. Big, loyal supporter and uh, a regular a contestant on our Friday night quiz, which if you haven't attended, you must. It's very, very good fun. It's the great Keith Adsley. Happy birthday, Keith. Thank you very much. Ahoy, hoy to you both. Yeah. How was the birthday celebrated? Yeah, it was fine. We um, Obviously, we're down here in Bristol now, been here for six months. So we had a nice meal with our youngest son and his girlfriend on Sunday. There's a uh, there's a light festival this time every year, so lots of light projections and and interesting things all over the city, so that was good. And then we watched um, watched several movies. So we watched uh, Nyad, which I can recommend, which is on Netflix that's up for some Oscars, um, about uh, a, a woman in her 60s who decides to swim from Cuba to Florida. Oh, yes. With um, oh, I've got Annette Benning and uh, Jodie Foster. Um, we watched Anatomy of a Fall, which is... Also up for some Oscars, quite powerful. Um, and then we watched. And that's what Fall is meant to be fantastic. It is. It's very. It's very good. It's very. It, it's um, the young boy in it who's about ten or twelve is really good. Obviously, doesn't know what's happened, and I won't. I won't give away any spoilers in case there's people want to go and see it. Uh, but that's very good. And there's a Korean film. What was it again? Oh, past lives. Past lives. Oh yeah, that's meant to be great. Too. Um, we go. Um, uninspiring, Julie shouting from the corner. We gave, <laughs> we gave up after half an hour. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. But Keith, you've got a theory, haven't you? Not a point you wanted to make about cover versions I've, in movies I, that are I've better got, than the originals. Yes, I've got a theory. So, so uh, as is your usual film club debate, where you talk about the latest uh, hot topics in yeah. uh, cinematic uh, uh, movie movie going. Um, I reckon there are some cover versions in popular films that are much better than the originals. 
and, right. and and I this is my my thing. So I'm going to give you some examples. Give us, I've got a couple. Give us yours. Well, I've got uh, Hotel California with the Gypsy Kings in the big. Yes, yeah, fantastic. That is a tremendous version. Yeah. Um, in Moulin Rouge, there's the Jose Feliciano version of Roxanne that is absolutely bonkers, where he growls through it. Oh, right. That is good. Um, Wes Anderson, well, Wes Anderson and the Coen brothers, both favourite directors of mine, and they like to turn things a bit on their head. So in The Life Aquatic by Steve Zizou with Bill Murray effectively playing Jacques Cousteau, um, there's several uh, Bowie songs covered by a Portuguese singer. Yes, there like is. Like Yeah. Who does Life on Mars. Um, and then we could even go uh, to a very old song, uh, Man of Constant Sorrow. Oh, my yes. Brother, my brother, where art thou? Uh, done by the Soggy Bottom Soggy Boys. Soggy Bottom Boys. Yes. Which is, which is, and I think each of those... The singer's the guy from the Alison Krauss group, isn't he? Yes. Yes. But I suppose in the case of the life aquatic, and I, I was thinking about that myself, they they just a they probably couldn't afford David Bowie, and b yeah. they just want something with a bit of a twist. So you got the familiarity of oh, well, it's a song I know, but I don't know this version. You know what I mean? So it's it's yeah. possibly the effect they're going for. I um I often quote I always I often say that the only cover version of a Beatles song that is better than the Beatles version is Fiona Apple's version of Across the Universe, mm. which is in the, the, the very end of, of Pleasantville. I don't know if you've ever yes, seen yes. Pleasantville. Yeah. A very good film. And I somehow that just works for me better, better than the Beatles one. But it, it accomplishes that thing of having something familiar, but also simultaneously unfamiliar you know which is what you get at the end of american beauty and obviously it's not better than the original by the beatles because but elliot smith's version have you seen that keith american beauty Beauty, ends with him singing because which is amazing i I think another absolutely fantastic one is uh is uh uh, is everybody's talking the old fred neil songs the harry nielsen version of that midnight cowboy absolutely just brilliant you know the story you know the story of how that ended up on the on the soundtrack no go on he was commissioned to write. He was he, to record. I guess the Lord must be in New York City. Which, if you're, if you're familiar with that, if you're familiar with Harry Nilsson's oeuvre, yeah, you'll notice it's very good, and it's quite similar to everybody's talking. And so, while he was doing that, they just used everybody's talking as a kind of placeholder. Oh yes. And by the time he came through with the with the, the song that was supposed to be in there, I guess the Lord must be in New York City, which applies to the plot of the film. By the time he turned up with that, they said, no, we're quite happy with what we've got. They would have cut uh, to and, it. And, and exactly. I think that happens in quite a few films. I can't immediately think of other examples. But, you know, if the director's spending months in an edit l- listening to something, they get attached to it, you know what I mean? And they don't want the thing that's slightly like it. They want the actual the actual thing itself. Yeah. I've got a great um, a great Wes Anderson story for you. When uh, when I used to work on my market store when I was back in St Albans, there's a guy who used to come along quite often who did a lot of post-production stuff. So he did post-production effects. And he's just he just worked on uh, what is the last Wes Anderson film, not the ones out on Netflix, but the uh, the one set in the desert, um, the kind of space crater one. Um, and he was saying he was working on this. And he goes, yes, he goes, uh, Every few days, I get an email 
in lower case, and it's a haiku from Wes Anderson with ideas of what to do in post-production. So he says, he just emails me lowercase haikus. And I said to him, which he unfortunately never did, please print me one out. I don't want Wes Anderson's email. I just want, you can cut that off. I'd just love to have a Wes Anderson haiku <laughs> up on my wall. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. That the director wonderful. will communicate via, via yeah, haiku. But only in weird Japanese poetry. It's like mime. Still. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Magic's probably off still doing some interpretive dance. That's yeah, he probably I'm sure is. He, is. he probably what, is. Um, I don't know if either of you saw the, the birthday card that I tweeted. The lovely Paul Cook also. I saw it. Yeah, that that was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. He, he, the way he drew it and everything, absolutely out of this world. I sent it. I sent it to Danny Baker, who I thought was hilarious as well. Because yeah. he's featured in it, and it was um, very affectionate. Yeah, there's one with you and Danny. It was you and somebody else. Who was uh, it? Me and Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. That's right. Yeah, it was a very good de- uh, version of Bruce Springsteen. The kind of the the, the recent ones, slightly kind the of recent. taut looking, strangely yeah. haired, strangely yeah, coiffured. Yes. He, he has got very. Um, I don't know whether it's all his own, but it's very short. He looks like. Uh, he looks like a, a kind of drill sergeant major. He, he looks does. like, I tell you, he, he looks like he looks like Robert De Niro in The Irishman or whatever it's called. Yes. Which he's is, got a rather abrupt 50s haircut. <laughs> he looks like he's about to say, am I hurting you, soldier? I should yeah. be because I'm standing on your on hair. Your <laughs> Getting cuts. <laughs> which, 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 of course, uh, there is a link to The Irishman because in The Irishman there is a, uh, there is a nightclub singer uh, played by Steve Anzant. Oh, there, right. there we go. There's a yeah. There's a club singer. It all links well, up. Obviously, very very much be wigged. Um, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't normally recognise him. Oh well. So uh, my other suggestion, the cover versions that's in uh, in films, is Tom Waits' "Way Down in the Hole" is used all the way through the wire, oh. but used in a different version every time. So it's like. Five Blind Boys of Alabama. I can't remember who else it is. You know what I mean? So you get the same song, but with a different twist. Well, he must have done nicely out of that, mustn't he? No, I suppose so. Yeah, I don't necessarily make, make fortunes. You know, again, I talked to David Simon, who did The Wire, about that. And he said he desperately wanted Way Down in the Hole. And this is a long, quite a long time ago yeah. that they did this. It must be 15 years. They, haven't they just had an anniversary of the wire? I think they have. It probably was 20 years. I think, um, it's, I think it's, twi- it's definitely 20 years. Uh, yeah, it's 20 years because Clarence Clemens appeared in a few episodes and he's been gone right. uh, 13, 14 years. Yeah, ago. okay. So, so it's 20 years and he desperately wanted it. And he tried through the normal channels, tried every way he knew and didn't get anywhere at all. And then he just eventually had to say, hey, hey, you somehow got Tom Waits' home phone number and risking his wrath <laughs> rang him up and said, you know, I'm an unknown filmmaker kind of thing, which he was at that time. And I want to use this. And um, Tom Waits said, oh, all right. <laughs> but apparently he took all his nerve to ring up. And he's very hardened, you know, former journalist. Sorry? It would, wouldn't it? Getting on the wrong side of Tom Waits, you yeah, imagine, would be a, a risky la- venture. It's a large area, the wrong side of Tom Waits. I think it's quite easy to get get into, actually. Yeah, it's easy to sure. occupy. It's, you know, it's as big as Texas, the wrong side populous, of Tom Waits. Many, many people have been on the wrong side of Tom yeah. Waits. So, Keith, well, look, lovely to talk to you, and thank you for your your log on the fire, um, and for your your support, which is much appreciated. 
No, I'll and, always be there. And consider your birthday extended for a further week. There, 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 you know, the festivities may well continue. Feel free to let the fireworks off. Absolutely. Keep absolutely. the drinks flo- topped up. So that's it from that's it from us uh, for this week. So that's it from me, David Epworth, and from Mark Allen. Say good night, Mark. Me too. Say good night. See you next week. Say good night, Keith. Good night, Keith. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. <laughs> <laughs>